HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working building in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Need a professional place to work from? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. This week, Meat and Three is taking you to market and all over the world, from Newfoundland to Tunisia. Well, a lot of us think of, you know, the British Empire trading things like spices and sugar and silk. But you write that it actually began with salt cod from Newfoundland. <laughs> there was a port closure in Tunisia, which was horrible. I mean, it was months, boats just setting on the water waiting to go and they couldn't go anywhere. And we'll learn about how markets have changed, whether because of their customers or the climate. A few years ago, something around the 10 years, it was totally different. It almost manifests itself to almost smelling like an old fire pit. When you mm-hmm. put it out, it has that sort of charcoal smell to it. It's not good for wine. Join us this week on Meat and 3 for our global market tour. And don't forget to subscribe to Meat and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. What are we going to make? What do you crave? Hold our hearts, our histories, share it on a plate. What do you taste? Bring your body, bring your love, bring the ones you're thinking of. I spent the past week in the Catskills with some members of my chosen family. Hiking and singing lots of karaoke and sitting around a fire, it was dreamy, dreamy. The thing that most stands out, though, is the cooking that we did together and then how good it felt to sit around a table with one another. I don't really know why I wanted to start here except to say that this week I hope that you also can sit around the table with people who make your heart sing. I'm Nico Whistler, and you are listening to Queer the Table on the Heritage Radio Network. Today will be our second Queer Boss episode featuring two brilliant, wonderful queer entrepreneurs making big waves in the food industry. 
This first interview was a little hard to pin down because my guest is a powerhouse running a business on two continents, uh, but it was so worth it. Here is Sana Javeri Kadri. My name is Sana Javeri Kadri. I'm the founder and chief feelings officer of Dasperco. And Dasperco is essentially a direct trade spice company that's really rooted in equity, in sustainability, and in radical transparency. And we definitely see ourselves rooted in queerness and queer theory, um, which I guess makes us a perfect match for your podcast. Uh, yeah, I know. That's something that I'm so excited to talk about. I was just rereading that. Um, but before we even get to that, just can you tell the story of what inspired you to start Diaspora Co? And I know it's a few stories kind of woven together, and that's great. Okay, yeah. So I grew up in Mumbai, and I had a largely very charmed Mumbai neoliberal childhood where Coca-Cola had just entered the market and you know, Mumbai was the youngest democracy in the world. And therefore, uh, most multinational brands spent the 90s, like really clamoring to get all of our attention. So I remember the summer that Nestle moved into India. I remember when Coca-Cola became available. Um, I really grew up kind of at the border between a non-neoliberalized, globalized India, and then this like newly capitalist multinational India. And from a very young age, I was very fascinated with food. In kindergarten, it was my kindergarten graduation, and nobody could find me. Nobody knew where. Like, the graduation photo for these little two- or three-year-olds was being taken. Nobody knew where I was. And I was in, um, maybe I was four, but um, I was in the, like, nursery kitchen eating all the popcorn for all the students. <laughs> uh, and that, that, that was very much who I was and I think who I have continued to be where my, my life ran on food and then I moved to Italy for high school um, I got a scholarship to go to this wonderful university, college called the United World Colleges and it's 200 people from 100 different countries everybody is really pushed towards um, using your education for sustainability and a sustainable future um, so in a lot of ways, I was really groomed to do what I do today. Like from age 16, this is what I was taught. And then when you go to United World College, um, you have access to go to a liberal arts college in the United States. Um, so from the age of 16 onwards, a lot of my formative years were spent in these new countries that I had never been to before. So I think my way of understanding these new places was also food. Um, in Italy, I didn't speak the language and I was suddenly very eager to understand how this place worked, but with no real frame of reference. And immediately the easiest way to understand where I was was food. And I would just roam the aisles of the grocery store and like try to understand what all of these things were. So I think food, yeah, was, was a translator. And then when I moved to the U.S., I think instead of being a connector, it ended up being this big disconnect where... I had always, I, I grew up, you know, with my aunties and uncles bringing Taco Bell salsa from the U.S. back to India over the summer. And my brother and I hoarding those little Taco Bell salsa packets all year as like very precious food. Incredible. We thought that Taco Bell salsa was like the most high-end like luxury commodity in the world because we only got like 50 packets every summer and nobody else had it. And, and like we thought fruit roll-ups was like the cutting edge of food technology. 
Um, <laughs> Gushers was like, wow, brand new world. Um, so I had grown up really idolizing um, packaged processed American food. Um, but then when I came, and then if you'd ask like Mumbai Sana as a kid, like where does food come from or where does food grow? I probably would have said at the grocery store, like at the market. That's how disconnected I grew up from where food came from. Um, and then when I moved to California, I moved to Southern California for college. And this was in 2012. I suddenly started, you know, seeing uh, farm to table, artisanal, single origin, all these words that I had never heard of before, seen before. And I was very confused. Where I was like, wait, Taco Bell isn't the cutting edge of the American food industry? And the more I looked into it, obviously, the more I realized that America had globalized the rest of the world to aspire towards industrial processed food systems. But within America, the entire country was running away from that as fast as possible and realizing that that wasn't the best way to feed the country. And that disconnect and then combined with my love for food meant that what I ended up studying in college was actually food studies. and. The more I learned, the more I realized that I really wanted to work in agriculture in India. And I wanted to apply what I'd learned about sustainable farming, about regener regenerative agriculture to where I come from. And then I remember taking an art history class um, with a former Black Panther. Her name is Phyllis Jackson. She's incredible. And she kind of looked at me and was like, do you understand that you're, I think she, I, I maybe said the line, like, I want to go back to India and make a difference. And that really bugged her because she she wanted to explain to me that, you know, actually India had a lot of the answers. Like, I didn't need to come to America and now take my American westernized ideas back to India. Like, actually, my country of origin and, like, the, the I guess, knowledge in my home country was, was more than enough to create any systemic change that I wanted and she was trying to explain this to me, but was also getting very frustrated with me because I was so enamored by the American Farm to Table movement. And I wasn't yet seeing the issues with it. I wasn't yet seeing that, you know, brown and black people are not visible in this system or not given the same opportunities. Right. And the way that that system, like, you know, is so indigenous so to all places and was wiped exactly. out. And she, I think, was push pushing me to understand systems of oppression and understand that um, the way things are come about because of systems of power and oppression, and in particular, the systems that most affected my life and my upbringing was colonialism. And, you know, when you grow up in upper middle class Mumbai, what you're actually told and what the British mandated curriculum to this day is, is that colonialism was kind of bad. Like, yes, people deserve to be free. But at the same time, the British taught us English and they gave us trains and like, Look at all these beautiful buildings we have now. Like that mm. came from the British. So there's this definite colonial hangover, like especially in Mumbai. Um, and it, it was this incredible former Black Panther professor of mine who pushed me to, to actually be critical about the effect of colonialism on India, on Mumbai, and on our food system. And she ended up forming the backbone of my research and my thesis where I was looking into the, the effects of colonialism on Indian agriculture in terms of bringing genetically modified wheat into the country, in terms of causing a famine that killed millions of people. And then through that, also looking at like 
as a post-colonial nation, how do we eat now? How can we, in some ways, revert back to ways we ate before we were colonized? And that movement was actually also picking up a lot of steam here in the United States amongst Mexican folks and like California people in terms of decolonize your diet. Right. Um, and the decolonize diet movement felt really new and exciting and incredible. And I I felt very strongly that this is this is what I want to do, but for India and for where I come from. But I didn't yet know how. Um, I just knew this in a very general kind of um, values and mission kind of way. And then I graduated and I was a lost graduate who didn't know how <laughs> one can apply the principles of decolonizing your diet with paying rent in the Bay Area. So I got a job at Byright, which is um, a really wonderful but high-end grocery store here in the Bay Area. It's kind of like the epitome of the farm-to-table movement brought into grocery store farm. And I ended up becoming their marketing manager. So I was combining my two majors of food studies and visual art into marketing food. And for a spell, it was really exciting. I was able to meet, you know, the most incredible people working in the food industry. But I quickly started realizing that I was spending a lot of my time telling stories that I didn't want to be telling, you know, like, for example, January and February in California, it's California citrus season. And so we do a big blast for California citrus season. And sure enough, you know, I had never, I didn't know that there was like 15 different varieties of citrus and it blew my mind. It was beautiful. But at the same time, my thesis had taught me that actually citrus was brought to the United States um, by the Chinese. And it was mostly um, Chinese and indigenous labor that worked on the citrus groves and in the Inland Empire. And that there was a lot of land grabbing and racism involved in the citrus industry and like in the development of Sunkist as an empire. Um and like, those were really the stories I wanted to tell. And then the more I was roaming around um, the grocery store, I was recognizing that in a lot of ways, the quote unquote, like ethnic food aisles were incredibly outdated spaces where, you know, you could, you knew exactly who grew your peach, um, how, it, how it was grown, what variety it was. But when you asked for that same level of transparency for things that were coming from other parts of the world or coming from non-white, non-Western cultures, there was a sheepishness and, a, and an ignorance to it. Like I started asking chefs and buyers, like, where are your spices coming from? Where are your lentils coming from? Where are your sesame seeds coming from? Tahini was really hip. Turmeric was exploding. Um, and everybody would kind of look at me very sheepishly and be like, well, you know, it comes from India. As though somehow it coming from India was this like big label of authenticity. And as though that that was enough in terms of understanding where it came from and who grew it. And I think I think the really the the trigger point for me was somebody I, I was in a conversation with somebody at one of these big Bay Area farm to table galas. Um and they said to me, Oh, but you know, India's such a poor country that everything in the market is just by default organic. And I rolled my eyes, I think, so far into my head that it must have gotten stuck. Um, because India has the largest level of fertilizer runoff in the world, like more than China, more than anybody else. So this idea that India is this third world country that is poor and therefore like magically organic and pure and pristine is actually a very reductive, very exotifying, like outdated narrative. Um, I think that's when I realized that if I did want to tell stories and market those stories and work in food, maybe 
what I should be working in is food from my own country and where I come from. And as somebody who had studied colonialism and the effects of colonialism, I knew that a really incredible place to start would be spices. And then the more I started researching about the spice industry, the more I realized that actually the spice trade hasn't changed since the 1850s. The way spices are bought and sold, as in they go from farmer to auction house to a trader to an exporter to maybe three other people in between to an importer, then to a company, then to a customer, and will have changed hands, been aggregated, been completely mixed up maybe 50 times, um, that system is still the way business is done. So this idea that a farm to table definitely doesn't exist within spices, and there's no incentive for that either. Right, absolutely. Um, it also like and, it also feels like this talking about 2016 and and kind of decolonize your diet like so quickly after that it felt like that idea of decolonize your diet was like also being recolonized with wellness kind exactly, of coming to exactly. yeah exactly and so yes on one hand I was seeing it turmeric as especially being really co opted by the wellness industry but essentially um the the reason I got into turmeric in particular, and then, and spices as well, was I visited, I had quit my job in February, 2017. I bought this one-way ticket to India thinking, you know what, either I'll do some research and start a company, or I'll just like shoot a piece about turmeric and pitch it to some company. I was really at a crossroads in my life where I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And um, I'm, I'm just going to figure it out from here. Um, and I ended up taking a flight to the Indian Institute of Spice Research um, and meeting Dr. Prasad, who is an incredible man and has been really, really a mentor to myself and to the company. Um, and he essentially explained to me that not only has the spice trade not changed since the 1850s, but also um, any all the indigenous varieties of different spices that existed um, were completely collapsed and ignored by the British and by the colonizers. Um, so to give you an example, the number one variety of turmeric that exists on the export market right now is a variety called Alibi turmeric. Um, but Alibi turmeric doesn't exist. Like it's not a scientific variety. Essentially, the British favorite vacation destination was beach town called Alipi. Um, so they decided that they would make a shade card and that any turmeric that met their this supposed perfect shade of orange would hereby be christened Alipi turmeric. This, this is very much the colonizer's way whereas like take something, baptize it, name it after something you like and make it your own. So for example, a lot of Americans tend to know Malabar peppercorns or Teletary peppercorns but those are actually just sizes. If it's Malabar peppercorn, it's because the British liked the Malabar close. And what they did is they made a, took a ruler, they poked some holes into the ruler. If it fell through the biggest hole, ta-da, it was Malabar. So, so it's like, it's big and colorful. Exactly. Or big and or colorful. Right. So like size and, and, and color were the only determining factors. Whereas I think it, traditionally, South Asia had a lot of indigenous knowledge um, about what different varieties of turmeric were used for. There are certain varieties that were used more medicinally because it was understood that they had a higher curcumin content. There were certain varieties that are used for dyeing and for ceremonial purposes. There are certain varieties that are just used for weddings because they're so aromatic. 
And all of that, all of that knowledge was lost, ignored for color and size. So my mission, I guess, became about shedding light on these varieties. So the comparison I often use is if you take an heirloom like peak season summer tomato, our turmeric is the equivalent of that, where we picked it for health benefits, flavor, and then we're growing it sustainably, regeneratively, and paying everybody equitably. So we're basically bringing, you know, a very radically transparent, but also delicious supply chain to spices in a way that haven't happened for a very long time, maybe 300 years. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, to be honest, in a way that has never happened in the history of the spice trade, from what I know. Yeah, own that. Yeah. I was really struck the first time I went to the Diaspora Co. website and saw, um, I don't know, like an all caps bold text of like, this is a queer woman of color owned business and just kind of that (laughs) declaration. And I I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you came to the decision of wanting to Mm -hmm. put that all really kind of front and center. Yeah. So um, I think first and foremost, I should give you some context, which is that I started to come, I moved back to India right after Trump was elected. I felt incredibly let down by the United States and felt like I really needed to go back to India where I could kind of recuperate from what had just happened. Um, I think for so many of us, immigrant, queer people, people of color, Trump's election felt like a blatant insult to who we were and whether we were welcome or not here. And so on the day of the election, I was volunteering and I was basically helping people get to their polling stations. I, I can't vote in America. I have a green card. And I was just so I was just so keen that other people who have the privilege to vote get out and vote that I was helping get people to the polling stations. And even on that day, I was told at BART to go back to where I came from. And, you know, that's that's not new language. That's language that we're seeing every day. Last week, it was the president using that language. So when I started the company and when I moved back to the U.S. to start this, I think it was this, with this very strong belief that one, immigrants feed America. Two, um, like I belong here no matter what and no matter who's in office. And, and that I deserve to bring my full self to work, whether that is as a woman of color, as a queer person. And so I knew that if I was going to create my own thing and create my own business, I wanted it to be 100% on my terms and 100% rooted in um, what I believed was right and the the space I was trying to carve out for myself. I think the biggest thing is I had, I left the United States feeling like there wasn't space for me here and I wasn't allowed to take up space here. And I came back to start Dafrico with a very strong resolve that like I was coming back to take up space to, um, and Dafrico was going to be that space. I think also a lot of the, values around Africa, around equity, around sustainability, around transparency, to me are rooted in queerness and rooted in queer theory. And the fact that like, if everybody is not free, nobody is free. And if everybody isn't making a living wage, then that's not okay. I, And comparatively, I think I have a lot of privilege. I have Indian class privilege. I have some you know, significant amount of race privilege. Um, but still, I think I still definitely knew what it felt like to be a minority and to struggle here. And I wanted to just proclaim very proudly that this business that I was building was for everybody. And and that's what we did. And 
There's definitely been people who have been less than happy, but for the most part, it's attracted exactly who we want to the company. And it's created a really wonderful community of people that really support us, believe in us. It's, it's, it can be pretty warm and fuzzy. I don't think a lot of companies can say that they have the strength of community that we do, especially as a two-year-old, like self-funded company. Um, it, it just, I think it sets the tone right away, saying who we are and stating how we're going to take up space for the kind of work that we do. And we, we really live by those values of queer theory. Ugh, yes. So important. Um, was there ever a time that you felt kind of hesitant about being so visible? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> try, try going viral on Vice.com and then reading the comment section. I will, I will say that I, ha- I am now more careful about where I use that language and where I don't. I, whilst I want to take up space and whilst I want to be brave and I want to make space for other folks, I also don't want to be a martyr. I want to make money. I want to survive. Um, so there's definitely times where I don't use language that I know will be like misinterpreted as inflammatory, even though for me, it's just who I am. I won't lead with those lines in certain interviews. It can still be found on our website, but, but I'm definitely, I'm definitely a bit more careful with it because there's only so much hatred you can endure in your inbox and in your comment section before you start to give up. And, And we've definitely seen our fair share. Um, yeah, that makes me think of, I was reading the the piece on BuzzFeed that Jesse did, and he talks about, like, I don't know, kind of how it's become this responsibility of queer folks, especially in food, uh, to fight for equity and to kind of, like, shoulder that. Um, mm-hmm. That burden. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how you react to that. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, sometimes I catch myself and I'm like, look, you you should be, like, getting dough, getting paid. It's not like I don't come from like there, there, there is no trust fund somewhere or this, there's no hundreds of thousands of dollars that are helping me run this company. We operate on a very lean budget. Um, and so, you know, taking the time to donate to the organizations we believe in and like stand up for what we believe in often seems exhausting when our peers and our competition in the industry are like, Usually white men run venture capital back. Not that there, I think there's anything inherently against venture capital funding or being run by two white men. I think I just wish that those companies felt the same moral responsibility and had to undergo the same amount of emotional labor for a better world. I, I often feel that companies not run by minorities have just a lot more confidence with which they use words like direct trade or ethically sourced, when in reality, when you actually look into the nitty gritty of those terms and what they mean for their company, it doesn't really mean equitably sourced in the DASPRCO um, definition of the term. So I think it, it definitely gets tiring um, shouldering this burden. But I think the other part of me feels like if you know, companies like Chicago's Hot Sauce and Daspico, if we're able to amass power and build our companies and do it our way in what we believe is the right way, that's also giving us a lot of joy in building community and like what we're choosing to be our life's work in a lot of ways is powerful and we become gatekeepers. So already, you know, just two years in, I do feel like a bit of a gatekeeper um, and that now I have some amount of power 
to help other businesses like mine to get in the door. I'm so in awe of Sana and of Diaspora Co. I don't really know what to add to all that she shared, except to say that you should visit their website, read their story, read about the farmers, and buy some spices. They started with turmeric and now also offer cardamom and will soon be selling pepper, ginger, and red chili. Also, she alluded to this, but Sana is really doing so much to support other queer-owned businesses. During that interview, you might have heard her mention a business called Chaquanda's Hot Sauce. Stay tuned, because after the break, I talk to their founder and queen, Andre Springer. This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? Host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L stop. It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 100 Bogart's Rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's Rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718-362-3539. Welcome back to Queer the Table. We have one more incredible queer boss for you today. This is Andre Springer. My name is Andre Springer. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I make yummy, tasty hot sauce. And it is the world's first drag queen hot pepper sauce. Do you want to introduce Shaquanda a little bit? Like, how did she come to be? What's her story? Yeah. The first time was at um, the slide where I used to work. It was located on the Bowery. It was one of my first bar jobs while I was in college. And this drag queen that was there, Linda Simpson, um, who I consider like a drag mother of sorts, asked me to perform and or really to participate in this uh, game show called Gay Jeopardy. And so <laughs> it was, you know, which I, I had seen bar backing there. Like it was just, it just looked like so much fun. And I thought that, okay, like, you know, this is maybe a way for me to kind of express like a more camp side of like my experience growing up in Brooklyn. And so that's how Shaquanda first came on the scene. And yeah. then after, yeah. And then after that, like it became like more of a regular kind of gig where Linda would ask me uh, if I could host this party with her or, you know, perform at this gig. And it turned out I was more of a kind of like a hosting drag queen than a performing drag queen, (laughs) 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 which was fine. You know, I still got the coins and, you know, I kept it pushing. (laughs) But my idea of performing was like the interactions that I, that I had with people. It was like more of a, my own sort of social experiments with how people reacted to different kinds of expressions of outfits or kind of personality at night. So it was a super fascinating time and a fun time. And in those performances, you're also, are you also feeding people? Well, the feeding part came at Bushwig. So like Bushwig is this big uh, drag queen festival that happens every year in Brooklyn. Um, And my friend Simon asked me if I could perform and like, you know, 
certain way. I was like, huh, well, I am working on this like sauce and I haven't really like publicly, like, you know, had brought it out. Like, you know, I was just like making things to eat. And since I worked in food, you know, I was like, fuck it. And like, maybe I'll just try to kind of like, you know, perform like in this sort of way. So I told, I responded by um, accepting the invitation, but only if I was allowed to do it in people's mouths. And so <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it started. On his website, Andre says, Shaquanda confronts gender lines and racial stereotypes through erratic, spontaneous performances. And he slash she exists currently in the form of a hot sauce. How does Shaquanda exist as the hot sauce or embody the hot sauce or, or why hot sauce, I guess, is my question. So like hot sauce, my family's from Barbados and we eat pepper sauce with everything. It's part of our like cultural identity and um, seeing like different forms of food on the shelves with like different, like, I guess, quote unquote characters or images and being an artist and making something like as a self portrait of myself it made sense to kind of move uh, it towards food. And it, like, it, it's also a statement about like how many of us sort of struggle. And, you know, we work, a lot of artists work in the food industry to support ourselves. And a lot of us do love food. Like I like love food. I have a lot of family that works in the industry. And, you know, my grandmother was in the industry. So for me, it was a reflection of myself and a combination of this performance character, my heritage, my love for food and all those things in one bottle. Mm, I love that. <laughs> so with this project, I think a lot about visibility in food. And I wonder, and this is kind of a broader question, but I wonder if you have thought about like, what does queer visibility in food look like to you? Or or how is that something that you mm-hmm. are intentional about? Well, it's like looking at the different, there's so many queer identities and so many different experiences And I think part of making that visible is expressing these different um, sort of experiences or humor or storylines within these characters or brands. And, you know, like, for example, you know, cereal boxes or cereal food, there's always these male characters, which we don't we don't necessarily know their identities, but we can gather that they're, you know, they're more like kind of cis male which is like fine, which is absolutely fine. Um, but it, I think it's kind of nice to, if you're a queer kid walking into a supermarket and you like see a character on a, on a cereal box that's kind of more representative of you, I think there's like a connection and it doesn't mean that it takes away from the other characters or the other experiences of the other kids. Like it's just a matter of, of equity and inclusion. And, you know, for adults, yeah. for me, like it's like, you know, I share for my sauce, you know, a very camp humor that goes with the literature, with the videos that I make. And then for other food products that I love to um, develop, we'll have like different sort of storylines and different um, ideas. Did you intend to start a business when this kind of happened with the, with that first performance in Bushwick? You know, I thought about, I toyed around with it, but I didn't think that it would have continued to this point. Like I, I thought of it as like, I was like, oh, like, let me, like, you know, see where this is. And then it just, you know, it became more serious. And, like, with food, with food regulations, of course, there's, like, a lot of seriousness and legal work and, like, work that goes into it. And so I was like, well, why? I'm not going to waste all this time. Let me see how far I can go with this. 
And it sort of has been like an organic ride and, you know, the acceptance of it and me and, and people want it. Like I have a demand for it, which, you know, I was like, oh, wow, this is super fascinating. Interesting. <laughs> like I have returning customers that I don't know, you know, <laughs> that for me is always just like, ah, oh. and it's not that I don't have confidence in myself. It's just sort of, you know, it's a nice feeling to know that in the middle of Indiana or Ohio or places as like a New Yorker that I've only been to once or have never been to that there are people that are supporting me that have has never met me. Um, do you have other hopes that you want to share for for Shaquanda will feed you as a business? Yeah, or I as wanna, a performance? <laughs> I want to make more videos. I want to create jobs for our community and, you know, for people who feel like they don't have a place in this world. Like I want to be able to create context for, for all of us. And that's my bigger goal and to be sustainable and treat our earth with respect and create a business that helps sustain that is my goal. And that's where I see Shigwanda is like a, a loving, sustainable company that thinks outside of like monetary goals. I mean, we need money to survive, but, you know, in the larger run, we need an earth that's here to support our children and our children's children. Yeah. And, you know, the food, it's food for the soul and food for the earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing that has come up that I'm thinking about, at least, is this idea of like the performance. I remembered it when you mentioned your videos and wanting to make more, which I love. Um, I've also seen videos of you in drag, but like at a farmer's market, which is not a traditional space mm -hmm. where a lot of people <laughs> encounter drag. And I wonder, I wonder about that. I wonder what that is like for you, or does it feel still like a performance at all? Or yeah, what does it feel like? It's a little bit of both. It's like, um, I, I, I started out in these spaces and which are generally straight and male dominated, you know, like hot sauce, like the makers, majority of them are, are male and showing up in drag. There's this, I don't know. It's, it's like a weird feeling where it's like, I feel like I have to be extra just to like win people over. But luckily the community has been like super fun and it's sort of allowing me to sort of be myself and going to markets that are in more conservative places. It's always like a, a slight feeling of anxiety because I don't know what can happen or if someone is violent. Like those are all things I think we as queer people think about and it's our safety. So I try to think about all the positive things and to be super positive because like what I'm doing is becoming visible in this space for people to experience, you know, in some way, if I connect with someone that's never met a queer person or never met a drag queen or, you know, never met um, someone like me, I hope that they would find it in their hearts to understand that, you know, I'm as much human as they are or anyone else. And so this performance is like a performance of humanity and reaching out to people that normally wouldn't, you know, see someone in drag or experience a drag performance. Mm. And what has that been like? Like, what have your experiences and connections been? It's been quite beautiful and like uplifting and promising where, you know, making people laugh and, you know, offering them like a taste of the sauce and seeing them be like happy with the product and also like 
engaging with me. Like some people are a little bit shy and kind of, you know, especially straight men. Some, you know, a lot of straight men think that if you're dressed up that you're looking to flirt with them, <laughs> which, you know, is always kind of hilarious to me. But, you know, I use that also as a way to kind of break the ice. Or I'm like, come over here, sugar, try some of this. You know, then I like invoke the ancestral grandmothers and the way that they interact with people and like own their personhood and like invite sweetness that's beyond others. It's like very welcoming. Um, and then when queer people see me and like they're in a space where they're like shopping, they don't expect to see someone like me there. And then they just say, like, run over to the booth, I'm like, oh my God queen and, and then it's like becomes more of a safe space for them as well so the, the the experiences sort of vary and you know are oftentimes very pleasant mm, i'm so glad so you don't have to buy shaquanda's hot pepper sauce at a farmer's market though if you live in new york it sounds like a really delightful experience you can find the full line of sauces at shaquandawillfeedyou.com so you too can be the queen of your kitchen. Dress your food with spice and flavor, honey. <laughs> Both of these entrepreneurs are so amazing and are really joyfully leading the way for small food businesses becoming more transparent, equitable, and radical. In a word, queer. Also, Sana and Andre just really love and support each other, which is the sweetest. Uh, so follow the links in the show notes to go and support them. Queer the Table is produced by me, Nico Whistler. Our logo is by Natalie Uduella. Denali Gillespie wrote our theme song and also inspired the name for the show. None of this would be possible without all the folks at the Heritage Radio Network who are about to take a well-deserved break. All of your favorite HRN shows will be going on a little hiatus. Queer the Table will be back to start our fall season the week of September 9th. Bye for now. I will miss you very much. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.